This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Today, we have Miss Danielle Smink with us. And she does all kinds of stuff, so we're going to let her open up and tell you a little bit about who she is and where she came from, and then we're going to jump in and talk about aggregators and women in insurance and just life in general, and God only knows where we end up in this thing. But here we go. Danielle, how are you doing today? I'm excellent. Thanks, David. Well rested. Yes, it's nice to have a holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are actually flying out tomorrow morning to Key West for our what is supposed to be quarterly long weekend, and it's been about five and a half months since we've had that, and that Mm -hmm. is like a mandatory thing in my household because my youngest son has some special needs that really force the envelope and test mom and dad's patience, so we're (laughs) finally going to get to go. Uh, down for a long weekend and, and rest and hopefully I will be uh, mild mannered and even tempered when I get back because I'm a little punchy right now taking the under on that <laughs> yeah <laughs> so anyhow get, tell everybody your backstory I'm not I mean I'm fairly certain a good number of the people who hear what we have to say um, know who you are and, and what you do but there's probably also a chunk that don't awesome well yeah so I wasn't ever going to go into insurance. Like that wasn't like, this is the game plan, but that's like with a lot of people, but I actually did choose it. I didn't fall into it. Um, I was a sixth grade teacher uh, before I went into insurance. So um, yeah, right that now sounds I'm like- That terrible. I know. Like I think of myself in sixth grade and I was like one of the <laughs> worst people on the planet. Eighth, eighth grade would be the only thing worse. I was actually better in high school than I was in junior high. I, I would have been your absolute oh, yeah. worst nightmare. There's no doubt in my mind. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying. Actually, the girls were worse than the boys towards the really? end of the semester. That's interesting. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, hmm. they, got, they went boy crazy and stuff like that. But uh, I had a, also a company that did event decor. So I would spend a weekend making twice as much as I did as a teacher for the whole month. And so there's always that entrepreneurial spirit in me. Um, I remember when I was a little kid and I decided that I was going to go and clean houses of our neighbors. And then I found out I was really good at getting the jobs I did not want to clean. And so I started getting my sister and other friends to do that. 
So I've always had like some type of little business, even you know since I was 12. So teaching um, is fantastic as far as I love, like I'm an ongoing learner. So I always felt like that always like pushed me to learn more so then I could be a better teacher. Um, so when I decided to not have two jobs and look for something else, I looked at mortgages, real estate and insurance, and I chose insurance for two reasons. I actually did not understand my own insurance and I had a home and I had autos and I had no life insurance at that time. So I was like, I think I really need to understand this even just personally for myself better. So I started doing research on it and, um, and then also because the residual income and I get to you know build my own business. So I went captive to begin with and found pretty quickly in a year and a half of being captive at that point that really I don't have options for clients. And I grew up in a town where my dad was in construction and I knew a ton of businesses, but could not write a single one with the carrier that I was with. So I knew commercial and David, you would totally relate to this. Commercial was going to be my jam, but you couldn't do it captive. So I went independent and I joined Canyonlands Insurance in 2004 and uh, Canyonlands was started in 2001 and I started our commercial division. Um, and had my own agency. So we're a group where everyone owns their own book of business 100%. Um, but I started off as one of the members of the group. And then in 2008, I ended up buying the group and really trying to transform us. Um, everyone thought I was crazy in 04 when I was like, I'm going to be completely paperless. And then in 2006, I kind of, you know, thumbed my nose at the uh, carriers and said, I'm going to use DocuSign in 2006. Um, and I said, if you need me to get signed apps from the clients, like physically, I'll go get them. But I had already decided I was going to make that transition. Um, so I was pushing our agencies to do so. Um, so this is our 20th year um, with Canyonland CLI Select Agencies. And um, we've grown to 70 agencies across the nation. And our goal is to get to 200. I don't want more than 200 because I feel like it's not manageable. We have more of a family type of feel with one another. And so like a big thing for our agencies is keeping independence independent, but in a place where you don't feel alone. Because the biggest thing is agency owners, we struggle with things that um, our employees don't understand. And then we don't know who to turn to. Sure. So that's a bit of my story. And I'm a mom. I'm an avid golfer. Um, there you go. My husband and I have been married almost 20 years. <laughs> what was, um, so what was it like starting up the commercial division just kind of from the ground up, especially after transitioning out of the captive um, world? Uh, it was probably easier than it should have been for me, probably. Um, uh, our group was really big with Hartford for personal lines. Mm. And I told them what I wanted to do. And they actually um, gave me a scholarship to their school of business. And that was like a really awesome education. And then I am forever thankful to an underwriter named Jeanette Diaz because she put me under a wing. I'd be asking her like, what are these accord forms? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I asked her all the dumb questions that everyone's afraid to ask, you know? So, um, but getting the first appointment, uh, you know, I went out and I talked with a bunch of the people that I knew from growing up. And um, my first account was uh, 900,000. So right away, Hartford thought I was the most awesome agent ever because who goes out and goes from zero to 900 and they've never written a commercial account 
um, right. you know, in, as an independent. So that kind of put us on the map with them. Um, and then I started, I was able to get other appointments from there because I could say right away, I'm like, Hey, look what I've done in my first six months with, you know, with Hartford, I've already put, you know, um, I had at that time put about 1.5 million in six months with them. So it was really easy to transition to get other codes at that time. So you know what? There are a lot of people listening to this right now that probably think that that, that you're an outlier because you went out and your very first commercial account was nine hundred thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case at all. I think that um, people, specifically on accounts that size, we overcomplicate it because we're worried about the insurance transaction. We're worried about the insurance piece. It's honestly irrelevant, right? In in my opinion, because when you go in to deal with the middle market in an account that size. It's already assumed that you know what you're doing from an insurance perspective. It's mm-hmm. already assumed you're a professional. You can place the policies and everything. And so when you don't know as much about the insurance, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not trying to take away anything at all from you bringing in a $900,000 account. I'm only speaking from my perspective. And I do, I, I honestly feel like one of the reasons why. I was able to write as much business very, very early in my career as what I was is because I didn't know the insurance, Mm -hmm. right? So I didn't focus on that when I went and talked to people and it caused me to have operational discussions and focus on relationships and things like that because I knew I had a safety net behind me of people that if it was something I didn't know insurance related, they could automatically take care of that for me and I would learn in the process. So many times, you know, even though they may not say anything and I would spend the time presenting, I would have somebody with me who understood all of that stuff <laughs> and I didn't have to know it. But, but here's the thing. Very, very rarely when you're in those meetings are insurance questions asked. It's never, hey, can you make sure that, you know, you have this underlying policy endorsed on the umbrella because somebody mm-hmm. else missed it? Or can you explain to me why everybody's asking me why I need to have primary non-contributory? And what's this over, you know, this action over law that's up in New York that I need to make sure is on any construction policy? Nobody asks that stuff. It's assumed that you know it. And so I'm saying this for the edification of the people who are out there and thinking about sticking their toe into commercial I'm validating everything I just heard. There's no doubt in my mind that Danielle went in and her first account was $900,000 because anybody can write a $900,000 for their uh, account for their first account. You just have to be believe that you can do it and not get scared when it's time to talk. That's it. Oh, I totally believe. I went into that account and I just, they want to be heard, the business owners. They want you to talk less. And honestly, I feel like we talk more trying to prove ourselves and then we talk them out of wanting to do business with us. Mm-hmm. And so all I did was walk into that account and I just, I, I wholeheartedly still believe today that if you walk into a client and just say, tell me your pain points, tell me your journey, like where you've been before with your insurance, where are you right now and where do you want to go? And also tell me the journey of your company of where you've been before, where you are right now and where you want to go. You let them talk and then you just take notes. You figure mm-hmm. out what they want. And if they ask a question that you're not 100% sure on, just let them know. Say, hey, you know what? I always want to be 100% on the answers that I'm giving you. Um, I have an idea of what that answer would be right now, but let me go back and check and I will circle back with you. And I always do a wrap up uh, email in after every meeting that I do with clients. And I go over everything that they told me. Like, here are the things I heard from you. Here are the things I'm checking up for you. And then I'll circle back on those things and give you the the 100% answer that I feel confident in. So it's okay to say I'm not 100. 
Yeah, yeah exactly. People, we talk I about I think people that. respect that. Yeah, we have talked about that a number of times. I think your point was good, though, about like sometimes just over-talking. When I was selling office supplies, that was one of the biggest mistakes I would have early trainees make is we would get through the pitch and they would drop the clothes and then the instead of waiting for the prospect to you know kind of um agree or or or, um, commit to the sale they in that dead air they would just continue talking and like talking about all these other things and sort of then it then it brings up questions and it kind of gets people thinking about other things instead of focus on the clothes so i 100 percent agree with you sometimes talking too much is um as salespeople, we 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 want to showcase our knowledge and and that sort of thing, but sometimes it can come back to bite us for sure. Yeah, you know, the other thing is, I think you can just start with tell me. You know, I've done a lot of research on your business. I feel like I have a pretty good handle on what you do, but I I really want to hear the story from your perspective. Mm-hmm. How did you get here? And just let them go, right? Mm-hmm. You don't. I mean. They're going to tell you so much if you're not, if you just let them talk, probably in many cases too much. The other yeah. thing, mm-hmm. the other thing that I always do in, and this is 100% of the time, and I've had people bash me for it. Honestly, that's fine. I, I'm not going to get caught up in the semantics, but you have to gain trust with a prospect and a client very quickly. And especially when you're in larger commercial stuff, there are so many pieces and parts moving around. You can't afford to play the game with anybody. And so I, I set the table every time and say, look, I'm not an attorney, but I want you to view our relationship as if you have attorney-client privilege. You need to tell me everything because unless you tell me everything, I don't know how to represent you the best. My job is to represent you. And in order for me to do that, I have to know where the bodies are buried and everything else. Mm -hmm. Just like if I were your defense attorney, you have to tell me what the information I need to be able to go to market and represent you. And it's funny because you'll get all, I've had people say, well, you know, my credit's not the best. It got jacked up because we did this or man, when you run my driver's license or, you know, we, we, and it's just amazing when you bring those guards down, but if you set the table right and you let them know that they're in a safe zone, that they can talk to you and then you actively listen, you have, the key is you have to actively listen when you ask those open-ended questions, whether it just be from acknowledging what you're hearing from body language or asking those follow-ups. But if you just sit back and actively listen and reaffirm that you understand what they're telling you and that you can gain, that you understand where they're, what they're feeling. Because most of the time at the point of sale, we're not looking for a logical decision. We're looking for an emotional decision, right? And so if you can empathize with people and say, it, it feels like, you know, it sounds like, it, you know, all of that stuff you're gaining instant credibility. The more times you do that, just letting them run with an open-ended question is huge because you're going to find out things that are going to help you when you put your narrative together to underwriters. Oh yeah, definitely. I always relate it to sports teams. Like I like that because it's just a good analogy to get them really thinking about their business. And when I walk in there, I say, I want to be a part of your team and and you need me to be a part of your team. The problem is, is that you're going to treat me like I'm a def- defensive player and I'm not. I should be an offensive player. And let me tell you why I should be an offensive player based on the things that you've told me. Like how much, how much, you know, you know, what's your safety programs that you have in place? You know, what are you doing in regards to, you know, your, you know, OSHA requirements, like really getting, a, di- diving in deep with them on the on the, you know, the proactive approach with them instead of saying, hey, we're here in case stuff goes wrong. 
and getting them to have that mindset that if you make this change with your business that that I need to know. So we can always play offense before you have to play defense. You don't win a game by playing defense. You don't grow as a business if you're always playing defense. You have to get to an offensive mode, even in insurance, and most people don't have that mindset that insurance is an off offensive part of your team. And so a lot of times I'm always taking them through that transition of like any type of change. And the ones, the, cl the clients that I've had for a really long time, I mean, I'm one of the first people that they tell me, hey, I think we're gonna you know, buy this business over here before they even tell their team because they're like, hey, how does this impact our overall portfolio so that we can be offensive when we take this over and not defensive? So how did you move into where you're at now? I mean, because you're way more than just walking in and writing commercial insurance policies at this point. I still do that. I love it. I mean, I don't. Can you ever imagine not doing that, David? I no, mean, like I it, can't. There's, there's this little like I don't know. I get I get my swagger from doing commercial. <laughs> That's the best way to put it. <laughs> um, well, I mean, look from my perspective, there's a much higher likelihood, and I, I mean, this is not going to happen. But there's a much higher likelihood to me going back and just being a one man shop that does nothing but produce for myself and has a smaller book of business than there is me turning my agency into a fifty million dollar a year revenue agency. Now mm -hmm. we got a good thing going, and I'm not going to do anything to disrupt that. But I say that because I'll never quit producing. It's just not going to happen. It's not in my DNA. I if I don't do that, I'm missing something in my life that has to be fed. I've, I've got to feed that need. Otherwise, you know, it'll be a different side hustle of some sort that allows me to continue to produce, but not inside the agency. And I, I need to keep my focus where it is. Yeah. And as far as doing the group for me, uh, because I was the first person to do commercial, a lot of the agencies, they they started just referring their commercial over to me. And so I got to know the agencies that worked in our group pretty well. And then I also wanted to um, help grow it. So I started like recruiting people in um, Ken Walters, my business dad that started our group, he's like, you're so exhausting. Like you are constantly, and I, he didn't pay me. Like I actually paid him to, and I did work for him to grow the group, but I, I knew the leverage of the group would help my book behave bigger than it did. So inherently I would make more money, right? So I already knew that would happen, but it was the, I always believe in the give to get. If you give more than you expect to get, then you will always get more than you, you know, than you were likely to get if you were to push it. So I started working with um, our agencies and then in 08 when I took it over, um, I worked on a lot of councils and I'm probably like a council addict. I think I'm on like 13 carrier <laughs> councils right now and I'm on the big eye council and like, this is, and I do it not because I can say, oh, I'm on councils. I'm so cool. You should listen to me. Like, no, it's been, it's been like, 17 years of council work and in watching the independent channel um, grow, but also I feel like, why are we not dominating the industry? Like we should, you know, we have, uh, we have agency, uh, agencies that can give advice. We also have choice on our side, but we don't play nice together and we don't help each other the way we should. It's gotten better, mindful of you. And it's gotten better for women too in the industry. Um, you know, when I started 20 years ago, it was very different. There's a lot more women that are taking ownership positions. There was lots of women in the industry that are CSRs and, you know, account executives, but mm. there wasn't really a lot of owners or management um, as far as, you know, positions go. So for me, doing the councils is I really, really love to 
impact change in our channel. So I want to see us dominate. And part of growing CLI and the group that we have is that we can start helping impact that change. And I can do it at a level that I feel is sustainable for me. That's why I'm like, I don't want a thousand agencies. 200 is perfect for me. Um, I have a really good team. We can you know, make sure we're taking care of them. And so that is why we made the change. But my big goal is that the independent agency channel dominates. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I agree with you in that I think that it has gotten better for women, but I'm also going to say it's not where it needs to be, right? I mean, I think the same holds true for minorities in general. I think that there's been a more conscious focus on building women up than there has been from a minority standpoint, but I also perceive that, and look, I understand I'm going down a real slippery, slippery slope right here, but I feel like a good bit of that is because I see more outward, out outwardly looking in, I see more organization in a more united front of women pushing the envelope to get to that position. Mm -hmm. It's not like the industry opened their arms and said, yep, we're ready to change the way we've thought all of these years. All the male, pale, and stale people that are, you know, industry icons and leaders are going to step aside and we want to have diversity and equality across the board. That didn't happen. Um, what I've seen happen is groups like Women of IAOA and Teresa's podcast, Power Women of Insurance, and the issue is becoming more and more and more aware. I also think that groups online like IAOA, where we're all together, makes it more visible for people like me who might not necessarily be the most extroverted in terms of putting myself out there for councils, for example, or industry, you know, leadership, even though I probably should do a better job of that, it, it, I, I wouldn't see that. And so when I see people post about situations that have happened to a female agency principal or a female producer, and I'm just cringing thinking there, I, I just can't believe this is still going on in 2022 and realizing that the fact I didn't know that is legitimately part of the problem. And so the only way that problems get fixed is for those problems to be um, brought to the surface and people made aware of them and then make a conscious effort to fix it. And so my challenge would be, and I know, and I know that there are minority um, groups out there with that intent and purpose behind them. I just don't see that they have been as vocal and as... Um, I don't want to say committed, but as vigorous in the fight for them to bring light to their issues. So hopefully just even bringing that up on the podcast starts a dialogue. And my challenge would be follow what, you know, Teresa's doing, Danielle's doing, uh, Denise Bravo, the people that are involved in women groups that are specifically lifting women up and push the envelope because there are men out there. I mean, not everybody's a, a chauvinist pig. I mean, I'm a hundred percent on board with furthering women in insurance. I mean, I'm trying to talk my wife into quitting her job and coming and working with me at, at the agency at some point, because she would be way better of a producer than I could ever dream to be and a better business owner for that matter. But, um, you know, there, I, I just think there needs to be more awareness how do we oh, fix absolutely. it? I, I started a group wise six years ago um, with my COO, Heather, because I'm actually I, I, in that group. I know. <laughs> so I I started it because I went to an industry uh, group that that was supposed to help 
you know, women uh, uh, in the industry. And it was women whining and whining. Like, I'll drink a glass of wine with any of you, but I am not going to sit there and be in the men haters club. That's not what that's about. So we really wanted to start a group where we could have open dialogues with uh, with agencies, but also with the carriers and about that men need to be aware of some of the things that are happening that they can do better. We all need to also recognize the men that are awesome at helping and empowering women and that needs to be shown too, because there's a lot of like my my business dad is a is a male, like, and he's the one that you know he's like you're going to be awesome at this taking over the group. And I was 32 when I took over the group, and I was pretty young at the time, and I was, it was the, like the female of the group basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know I've had people that I call minifactors that have helped me in my career. And on the on the other side is women have to take ownership of the things that we allow our negative talk with ourselves or with each other um, where we're pushing each other down. And you're absolutely right. We have to lift each other up. So we have to take ownership of that side too. So it's a dual conversation of how we do that. Same with minorities is we need to recognize it in, you know, which ways are we lifting them up? Which way are we lifting them down? But how how are they each individually doing that to themselves too or each other? And so there's ownership on both sides of it. I mean, it's definitely gotten better, but there's still times where I will tell you, like the first time I came out of COVID and I went into um, a conference uh, and um, I was one of the few females there, some of that came back. There were some men that I'm like, it's, and you got to be able to say, it's not okay for you to talk to me like that. I'm one of your peers. (laughs) And, you know, and then you got to step away from that person. And then, hmm. you know, not have it a big deal, but just stand up and respect yourself. I think sometimes women will laugh it off. They'll say it's a joke because it's uncomfortable. You have to be able to say, hey, that's not cool, dude. Like, I'm your peer. I'm here to learn just like you are. Let's just focus on that. Hey, here's a fun fact. I'm their peer and I don't want to hear it either. Like, it has nothing to do with whether you're not you're a woman or a man. It's called manners. And people who mm-hmm. were brought up the right way yeah. and understand how to conduct themselves in a business environment should do that regardless of who the company is. I mean, I, I think about it all the time. In, in the, you, you always hear this statement, right? Oh, I, I shouldn't talk like that in mixed company. No, you shouldn't talk like that, period, right? <laughs> if you want to do that, do it in the privacy of your own home. But so many times you see people just, there, there's there's way too many times that as a grown man, I'm still uncomfortable with the conversation that is acceptable. Mm-hmm. In a professional environment, it just doesn't make any sense. So, ladies, you're not the only ones that are offended and embarrassed and uncomfortable in those situations. Obviously, more so depending on the subject matter. But I'm the same way. Like when when I want to talk shop with somebody, I want to talk shop. What, Whatever is going on in your personal life or any of that other stuff, if it's you know if it's something that is not G-rated, I'm not interested in hearing it. Oh, definitely. <laughs> but that's a good point. So, so let me ask you this: we because we actually had the same sort of conversation when we had um, Kate Bradley Chernis on the on the podcast, the mm-hmm. CEO of Lately. How do you how do you gracefully get out of those situations? I mean, you have to have a backbone, right? Like you have to have the guts to say it. Like I don't. For me, it's difficult for me to understand people just accepting things like that because. I'm not wired that way. Like if I've got a problem with somebody, my response is, Hey, I've got a problem with you. And sometimes that works great. Sometimes it gets me in trouble because people don't like confrontation, but the truth of the matter is nobody's ever going to wonder where I stand. 
I think it's the perception of men versus women. So if you read a book called Confidence Code, women, they think that if they stand up for themselves, they are going to be considered the B word. That, uh, you know, if a man stands up for himself, he's assertive, he's aggressive. And those are good adjectives towards him. I think that that you just need to, as a female, you know, not think, hey, you know, they're going to think of me as one of those type of women that, you know, she can't handle it. She's not tough enough. So those are the adjectives that, you know, are often said you know, internally, as far as women goes, or externally um, to them, that they've heard it enough that they they have that perception of it. And so I just gotten to a point for me as I've gotten, I, I will tell you, like 20 years ago, wasn't great at it. I would make a joke of it. I would laugh about it and just be like, okay, that's what they're like. And I try and distance myself from them. As I've gotten older, I'm like, hey, that's not cool. You know, I just, that's not going to be ever acceptable. Let's talk about something different. You know, I respect you as a person. I'm going to ask you to respect me as a person because I haven't done anything to, you know, lose that respect from you. So let's just have like a good conversation. I can say that now. I will say if you have heard conversations being told at you or a perception that's been told at you, you're going to have a hard time just saying it off the get-go. So as you've had more experience with it and the more confident that you become, it's easier for you to push back because you know, you're able to do it because you have the experience of, you know, understanding what happens in that conversation. And I've gotten better at it. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, in having people approach me that way, it's taken a lot of time. So if you're not really, my advice to women, if you're not really comfortable with it, start working on it and start thinking about how you would respond to people. Like when I go into a given situation, if, I mean, if I know I'm the only female in that convert, in that group, I will tell you there's a dynamic that happens and that I know that I might have one or two that are not awesome of the guys, but most of the guys are awesome. That's what you got to think about. Like most of the guys are super supportive, super awesome. I focus more on them than the other ones, but I prepare myself for possible engagements that are not going to be comfortable or acceptable. And then I prepare myself for the response that I'm going to give without losing my power and giving it to them and validating what they're saying. Mm-hmm. That is an exceptional response. And for all the ladies that are listening, if you've not read The Confidence Code, The Science and Art of Self-Assurance, What Women Should Know, while Danielle was laying it down, I just bought 10 copies of that on Amazon. And if you, you message me, uh, you got to listen, people. Please follow the directions. It's why I'm slowing down and making sure you follow directions because I get hit on LinkedIn Messenger, Facebook Messenger, everywhere else. It will never get to you if you do that because your message will get buried. What I need you to do is email me, david at floridariskpartners.com. Put confidence code in the subject line, nothing more so that I can sort by subject and I will run all the labels at one time and ship them. But if you're one of the first 10 people to reach out to me and follow those directions, I will send you a copy of this at no cost. It's well, I'm going to do it first book. because nobody's going to hear this before I'm going to be able to get that email in. So, Well, I actually ordered like 15 <laughs> copies and was going to keep some of them internally. So yeah, you but, called me out. And then you'll give me a copy like eight months from now, whatever. Yep, exactly. No, you're really bad at this, man. So I'm probably going to get it to you sooner than later. <laughs> I'm just... Danielle, if you knew the irony, we are both married to very strong personality women that are probably actually very much the same um, in many respects. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, that was 
that was a little humor for those of you who thought that I was actually taking a shot at Kyle. Um, no, his wife wouldn't let me take a shot at him. So <laughs> that's probably true. Um, so what do you see coming? I mean, the aggregator. So, so you're technically, are, are you technically an aggregator? Are you market access? Explain what that looks like as far as, um, the structure. Cause I've heard nothing but good things about your operation, like nothing but good, which is really uncommon in the insurance industry. Usually there's an outlier out there somewhere that's going to some hater somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I've never heard a bad word. It's all been very much raving fans, which is a testament to leadership that you have a culture of a bunch of agencies who aren't necessarily together, but they are. So talk about that a little bit. How do you get there? Yeah. So when I took over the group in 08 and everyone was like, oh, are you a cluster or an aggregator? I was like, how did we get these two words to represent what a group is? Because they're mm -hmm. horrible and they just sound terrible, right? Like it's a cluster. Well, that doesn't ever sound really good. <laughs> no. and, yeah, anytime you know, I say something's a cluster, it's never good. <laughs> it's not good. Because it's usually true. followed by a four letter. Yeah, watch that. Watch exactly. <laughs> I try not to curse on your show because that's one of the things that I'm trying not yeah, to we do. We don't care about that. Yeah. If you Google me, my my daughter, okay, my daughter Googled me in her class and it came up with the book that I wrote, wrote and it has the S word in it and she got in trouble in class right before break. So I'm like, That's okay, stupid. I've got to be a little bit better for my kiddos on that. Um, I don't curse in front of them. Don't get me right. But anytime I'm free flowing it with, like, with you guys or anybody else, I'm like, I just, it's just going to happen. Easily. So um, people who but, swear are more honest and that's a fact. Yeah. So I'm super honest. Super exactly. Honest. <laughs> um, but aggravator sounds like it's aggravating. And so for me, we always thought we were um, we were a network um, of, of agencies is really what we are. And, you know, we have no buy in. We have no buy out. Our agencies own their book 100 um, percent. We have a corporate team that helps them behave much larger than they do at their own size. And it's not just from a premium size. So if you're a if you're a larger agency, you'll have an in-house person that understands technology, right? Well, a smaller agency can't have a person that does that. They'll have somebody that helps coordinate contracts for them. They'll have somebody that helps coordinate um, financials for them. They'll have somebody that helps coordinate, like we have a full-time marketing person that helps our agencies. Um, so we're, and then we have a whole internet and university that helps our agencies and training programs. Well, if you're a smaller agency, you can't afford to put together all of those resources mm -hmm. and have those at your fingertips. So ours is about leveraging your agency to behave bigger than it would if it was on its own. And it's like I said, it's not just the the profit share or the you know the carriers that you're able to access. So it's not just market access. It's more of like how do we help guide you? I mean, we always say with our agencies with CLI, you're not alone. We did a whole video series on it. It was really awesome to hear the agency owners, you know, talk about their experiences with us. And I'm very fortunate that we do have a good group where hopefully there's not like a bunch of haters. Um, and, and but we love you. We love each other. Like it's I mean, I've been blessed to be the person that if somebody gets cancer outside of their wife, I'm the next person they tell. Mm -hmm. um, or our team. And they know that we'll be there for them. We've had them. We've had it where my team has come into another office for an agency, taken over their stuff so that they can go take care of health matters for themselves 
We're not gonna do that all the time. We're not gonna do it for like a year for them, but we're gonna help transition through the hard stuff. And then we've, some agencies come to us to get started, but some of them come to us to perpetuate. So perpetuation is a huge problem. And most agencies don't understand how to sell their agency and they don't know how to set it up to sell it too. So there's so many different things that we do to try and make sure we support agencies no matter what life cycle they are in, whether they're starting or they're ending their agency career. I think that's a huge point because I think when you go the cluster or the aggregator route so many times, it's we just need to get to the markets, right? People mm -hmm. aren't they're, – they're, they're joining and, look, I don't want to – I don't want to make a blanket statement and get myself in trouble, but in some cases, maybe selling their soul, you know, by contract mm -hmm. to the people they think are going to help them when really it's a very um, adverse relationship from as soon as the ink's dry, you know? So uh, I think what you're doing is good. I think that, you know, that's good advice for anybody is to treat people, you know, teach people enough to where they can leave but treat them good enough to where they don't want to. Right. And, and if you're giving all of this value added stuff, whether it, I, I've actually looked at doing something similar and, and have to a certain degree, much more informally inside killing commercial for all the mem member agencies that are in there, you know, I'll bring people that have very specific skill sets like a Ryan deeds, for example, who's a freaking just data guru. Well, I put him into that community because I want, my people that are in our group to have access to some of the smartest people in the insurance industry. And Ryan happens to be one of them. Carrie Wallace is another one. You know, she's not going in to take digital sales training from us. She's going in to interact with agencies that have questions on perpetuation and valuation. And now she's in our ecosystem and readily available to all of our members. And so, you know, it makes it much more valuable to people than just teaching them how to go out and write commercial insurance or marketing strategies or cold calling strategies or whatever else. They are real issues. And I think so many times, many of us, me included, start our agencies without the end in mind. And that means when we get to the point where we start thinking about the end, now you got a checklist a mile long of things you've got to make sure are in order before you're even ready to go to somebody to value your agency, <laughs> let alone try and sell it. And so when if you have an operation that is constantly nurturing and supporting people especially with others including them with others in an ecosystem where they can lean on each other and collaborate without having to worry about people poaching the best ideas and everything it just makes for a very very powerful organization period and it, that doesn't even matter what industry you're in at that point yeah a lot of it's about culture and it's also about vulnerability so if an agency, if I'm talking with them and I always say, is your ego in the way? Is your ego out of the way? And if their ego's out of the way, I can work with them. My team can work with them. If their ego's in the way and they don't want to have a mindset of sharing, and you mentioned IAOA, that's why we, our group, a lot of our group members go to IAOA. We, um, at the end of it, we get together as a group and we talk about, you know, what we learned. And it's really awesome to have that because, you know, but, Prior to that, we had that in our little ecosystem of us at CLI doing that together, but then we were able to have IAOA do it on a larger scale for us and be able to help one another in that essence. But not everybody is of that mindset. And so you've got to make sure you have the right people 
engaging with one another in an open manner that it's okay to say that, hey, I failed, this didn't work. Now what did I learn and what can I teach? And not everybody is capable of having that type of mindset. Agreed. What if we missed Kyle? <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. You tell me. Oh, I know. Let's go back to golf for a second. The important stuff that, <laughs> that, that people care about. All this all other right, stuff. I'm gonna li- I'm gonna sit back from the microphone at this part because I have nothing to add to this conversation. <laughs> no valuable contribution. No, I went on out. Your end here. I went out and swung my clubs. <laughs> there you go. How's the shoulder feeling? By the way, did you actually go out and swing? There you go. Okay. Yeah, dude. Actually, believe it or not, man, um, I hit the ball way better than I would have expected to hit it. After all that, picked up a club for a while. It it it, and and everything felt way more fluid. I didn't feel like bone spurs were ripping the muscles and things. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. no, actually, I I hit it all right. Like, I mean, my scoring wasn't any better than it was. But no, I just meant how did it feel? It felt good, and my drive was actually on point. Man, I hit a couple bombs right down the middle. There you go. So so, Danielle, favorite uh, favorite course that you played. Uh, oh, that's so hard because so St. I just got. I mean, you mentioned you were in Hawaii. Like, there's got to be. Uh, that's one oh, of my. Oh, there's tons in Hawaii. I, 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 you're uh, on, but I mean, uh, St. Andrews for just you yeah, know the whole that's history. That's on the of that's it, on the list for sure. Um, I would say the memorial. I actually won the pro am in 2017. Okay. Um, so that's like a cool memory. Oh yeah. It's a horrific course. I did not play as well as I did. My team totally carried me. I'm like, I had a couple of good shots, but, um, you know, that one. Uh, but as far as, like, scenery, I would say um, uh, in the Dominican, there okay. is a course uh, called Pueblo Grande. And okay. it is, like, it's called the Pebble Beach of the Caribbean. And it's absolutely, like, breathtaking. Just, right. I mean, there's one of the tea boxes. You're sitting there, and they have a sea cave that goes underneath the tea box, and then they have a big hole, and as you're teeing off, like, water shoots off in the Sounds middle like of a, the like Sounds like a miniature golf, like, setup. That's pretty cool. I, I played in the Dominican Republic, Republic um, when I was down there for a wedding at Punta Cana, um, and yeah. it was same, you know, beautiful. There wasn't anything like that extravagant, but it was cool. St. Andrew's definitely on the list. My wife works for ADP and one of their, um, president's clubs was supposed to be over there like before COVID and it got, and it got canceled. And I was furious because we were going to go for like, you know, a couple weeks and I was going to go play St. Andrew's and everything. But my favorite course that I've actually played has been, um, the ocean course at Kiowa where they had the PGA last year. It was pretty, pretty spectacular. Very hard. It you don't get it doesn't do any justice watching it on TV. Like the wind is insane. Mm-hmm. But see, see, I tend to look at stuff like that and find that it's irrelevant because my game is so bad that it's going to be <laughs> bad on a bad course or a good course yeah. equally. Like I don't, and I'm being dead serious. Like I don't see that my bad score goes up by ten more strokes. I play consistently regardless. Yeah, probably of how, not. How hard the track is. So that's fair. I shot it. I shoot a solid 110 no matter where I'm headed. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, what do you got? Solid what do you have in store for 2022, Danielle? I mean, what's what's coming up big? Uh, we have an initiative called Declaration of Independence, uh, and that is for giving out a declaration that we created to agencies for free. 
Um, and it's where you can sign it with you and your team and it doesn't have any of our logos on it at all and you can put it up in your office and it goes to showing your clients and your team of why we do what we do. So that's a part of our initiative um, for this year. I'm hoping things keep, like, I like things to be open up. I want to do another WISE retreat. I've done um, a couple of those. They're very small or very intimate. Um, it's very cool to get a bunch of women together and then we hold each other accountable. Um, I'm very blessed to be a part of an all-stars mastermind group with um, like Steve Holly and Billy Wagner and Jason. Oh, Cooper. that's right. You're like in their group. Guys. Okay. Yep. And I forgot um, that. Yeah. And so we quarterly get together. So that's always something that's really cool for, you know, for us in, in doing that. Um, as far as like the, our group, uh, we are really working hard on, uh, we just did an overhaul last year on our internet uh, for our agencies, and it used to be called CLI University, uh, but we changed it because agents don't want to go back to school, and so we didn't, <laughs> we didn't have utilization like we should, so um, we call it Accelerator, and so really putting more and more content into the Accelerator, we have like um, a por portion for their team, we have a portion for them as owners only, um, we partnered up with Simsi to, to white label some stuff for commercial for them so they can send it into our team if they're not able to write it. So we've done a lot of work there and it still has a lot of work to do on it. So I'm looking forward to that stuff. And then, um, personally, my husband will hate me for saying this, but he turns 50 and you'll understand this as a golfer. So his 40th birthday, um, I took him to St. Andrews. His 50th birthday, I got him a package last year at 49, or yeah, it's last year now. I keep forgetting, like, it's 2022, um, and yeah. it was it's to Ireland, so I'm hoping we can still do that, so it's all the famous courses in Ireland. We're going nice. to go do that, so yeah. That's awesome. Good deal. Well, I don't, I mean, I think we hit everything I wanted to talk about and there is plenty of meat in there for people to chew on. So mm -hmm. I'm going to give everybody a reminder before we wrap up. First off, Danielle, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to come on with us way overdue from my standpoint. I mean, at this point, we've just about run the table on your mastermind group. So I probably need to get a roster of who I haven't had on the podcast. I know Nick Bogan is one. Mm -hmm. And then, um, Oh, what's the guy's name that lives over in Lakeland that I never remember? Don? DJ. What's his last The life guy. Westerfield. Who? Westerfield. Don Westerfield. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. We got to get him on, man, and then we can officially say we've we've run the table and had everybody in, in uh, Holly and Billy Wagner's mastermind on, on the podcast. But, yeah, but uh, we just added Jennifer Clagey's, and then we just added Andy Priestman. Oh, okay. Well, there's that. <laughs> Jennifer, so, harder. <laughs> so we have to add Priestman, but we've had Clagis on here. So mm -hmm. cool deal. Well, listen, thanks so much for your time. And I want to remind everybody, we did buy literally 10 copies of the book to ship out. Some of them are going to stay in house. Please make sure you follow directions. Email me, put the right wording in the subject line and I'll get it out. I'm going to wait until I get all 10 responses in. So I'm sitting down and doing labels at one time. Yes, people, I know I could have gone on ahead and just had Amazon send them to you and I wouldn't have to pay shipping on them. But I put a note in every book that I send and Amazon can't do that for me. So that's why I have them sent here first. Anyhow, 
I hope everybody has a great week. And that is it. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com. <laughs> <laughs>